designing, manufacturing, installing, and maintaining the high-speed electronic computers, the largest and most complex computers ever built. Hey, Spot. Hey, Joey. How's it going? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Doing pretty well. We're going to be listening to an interview um, that we did with Alistair Reed. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So Alistair is a formal verification engineer. Alistair was at ARM for quite a few years, working on some really critical formal methods applications within the hardware world, and has recently transitioned to Google, where he's now trying to apply the same sort of thing, but for software. Alistair's got some really cool ideas about how to bring formal methods and how to bring proof style approaches to a large number of engineers, either in the hardware or the software world. So I'm really excited about doing this interview. Let's take a listen. Thanks for joining us, Alistair. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'm going to kick you off with our usual question, which is what is your approach to building better systems? Uh, so at the moment I'm working on uh, verifying uh, Rust programs and uh, trying to use the uh, the tools developed in the kind of formal methods community uh, to do that. And the idea here is I think that kind of we can make programmers uh, kind of more effective using formal verification tools. So uh, you know help them kind of hit whatever their quality goal is, help them hit it more efficiently is kind of the idea. And if they then choose to kind of like take the time saved and build something better, you know, I'll be happy with that. But just getting people to go, this is worth doing. Uh, it makes my job easier, uh, more enjoyable. I'll take that as a win. So this is a bit of a, a different perspective than what we have sometimes, which is that formal verification is this really heavyweight thing that you can do on the most important projects. But it sounds like you have a an overarching thesis that this is something people could find, the approaches you're building are something that people could find useful from day to day. Right, and I mean, it's partly that, but it's also that uh, if you say that, you know, this is, I'm going to guarantee your code is correct. Well, one, you're probably lying, but two, you're also setting yourself up with a really hard goal to hit and uh, you're guaranteeing that it's going to be quite an expensive uh, task. And so you're only going to apply it in a few cases. And so, you know, I'd, I'd much rather just get, lots of people getting some value out of verification tools and then building that and kind of later on people go well if i get a medium number of people getting a bit more value and then you know right at the tippy top you've got uh, kind of like you know the people who are trying to kind of like show uh, very strong properties but there's not so many of them perhaps and until about a year ago i think you were putting together approaches like this at ARM, or you were working on just how to approach this problem at ARM? Right, yeah. We were trying to figure out how we could kind of bring formal verification into uh, kind of into the company. And there were some sort of like technical ideas. And so I was kind of contributing to that. So uh, kind of uh, we built the uh, formal specification of the ARM architecture, and it's got like all instructions and all the address translation and all the exception handling. And, you know, it's a very complete specification. Uh, but then we had to kind of like use that. And okay, so we kind of figure out a way that's kind of uh, very effective at finding the kinds of bugs that normal testing is missing. And it's like, great, we're done. 
It's like, no, we've got to persuade kind of the uh, the teams that they should actually use this. So it's like, you know, you persuade an individual, he's happy, yeah, this is great. But you've got to persuade the, the tech leads and the project manager that overall their project is going to be better. They're going to uh, kind of like get alpha a little bit earlier. They're going to kind of have a better time when it comes to integration testing. And finally, they're going to re release something to uh, customers that is going to be less buggy and hopefully delivered a bit earlier. And so you've got to do all that. And then you've got to go to the next team and do it with them as well. And eventually you've got to kind of like work your way up to kind of like the kind of senior management and say, so we want you to give us a bunch more money to buy tools. We want to, uh, we want to do a bunch more training uh, for people and we want you to, you to hire some extra people so that we can do this new technique. And then we had to kind of like figure out, well, how on earth are we going to persuade them to spend more money? Because they don't like spending more money. So, uh, you know, so we had to, yeah, figure out how to do that. Um, so I did that in hardware and then switched to Google and uh, I'm trying to figure out kind of what I can take from that for verifying uh, software. What's different about the, the, the two jobs, verifying hardware versus software and what maybe surprisingly was, is similar? Um, so right at the lowest level, there's a lot of similarities. So they kind of, I, I tend to use automatic verification tools because I think they give you the most bang for the buck. And, uh, so kind of underneath a SAT solver, a model checker is basically the same kind of like the lowest level libraries you're using. But then on top of that, uh, there's a huge amount of variety in, in software, different ways of, uh, kind of writing it, different languages you write it in and uh, libraries you're using, all kinds of stuff, has a huge amount of variety. And uh, well, at ARM, it was mostly processors. And so we could focus on kind of one thing and one set of challenges that come up in processors. So kind of that, the bit of what you actually do when you're at the keyboard is kind of different. But then kind of like, you know, you get the same thing that what I was talking about is like within the project, it's the same There's questions like, you know, I, I've just verified something. I go to commit whatever I verified and someone has to review it. So can that person who's reviewing it do a decent job of reviewing it? When they look at what I verified, can they go, yep, looks like you've done, you've checked everything that we want to check. Or are they going, huh, why didn't you check this? Or, or maybe they 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 can't even spot that uh, you mm -hmm. know there's something missing there because they're unfamiliar with uh, with verification. So there's you know that kind of team level stuff, and then up kind of the higher levels in the company as well. If if they're, I would imagine that if they're you know in a position to say why didn't you check this and why did we verify this, you've already kind of you've you already bring in a bunch of value because you've you know you brought the team kind of halfway to meet you halfway in a way. Yeah, so we've got to figure out kind of like how to get to that to that point where they can actually look at something and go, looks like you've uh, done enough, and you know they can be confident that they're that that's the right answer. Mm -hmm. How do you this this concept of convincing, so to speak, the higher ups uh, about the value of this stuff is is very interesting to me. I think sometimes we hear about people having feeling burned from formal methods when they were introduced to them decades ago and 
it seemed that the, the promise was much more than what ended up happening. Now, of course, some of those tools were not as deployable, um, academic prototypes and things like that. So we often kind of meet that now, basically, uh, you know, where when the actual state of the tools and approaches is, is very different. You're doing this at, at huge organizations that, that, you know, have businesses built around delivering things quickly, right? I'm just... I'm very curious about how you go about getting people to understand where we are with these tools and approaches. Yeah, so that's really hard because there's all kinds of messages kind of floating around any company about what formal verification means. And uh, so I, I suspect that what I'm going to end up doing is trying to avoid using the words formal verification and just kind of like, this is a better way of testing, which, mm. you know, if you want to get value out of the formal verification tools, then just treating it as a better way of uh, testing things and maybe not even worrying about, you know, soundness. It's like, it's okay to miss some bugs, but we'll catch some really important ones. You know, that might be a successful message. And then you can kind of like go from there. But uh, at the moment, they're so used to things being oversold uh, and they, there's all kinds of things that they know will not work and, you know, they'll be promised the moon and they won't get it. Uh, that, you have to be super careful about uh, what you say and and what other people are saying about your work as well. You have to be kind of careful about that. So. It's interesting when we, before we started recording, I asked you how your day was and you told me excitedly that you spent it working on proofs and just kind of technical work. And then when you talk about this, you know, having these conversations and debates, uh, I feel like you find as much joy in, in getting people on the same page about this stuff as, as in some of the technical stuff. Is um, that, how, how, how correct is that statement? Do I get joy from it? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about joy. I, I, it's one of those things like, uh, like writing a paper where it's like, I'm really glad when I finish doing it. But when I'm actually doing it, it's like, it's just the most miserable thing in the world. <laughs> so, But the end result. <laughs> Yeah, so if I, you know, when I can persuade someone kind of, or, you know, kind of like correct someone's uh, viewpoints and things, yay. But, yeah, right. you know, the if process. I could avoid having to do that and just focus on the technical stuff because someone else was, you know, doing that, I might be happy with that too. Hmm. You're doing it out of necessity. Yeah. And part of, I think part of the, part of the idea, hopefully, is that it's a, like, you have to get this, you have to get the momentum started, but like, obviously no successful approach has been one person sort of going out and calling up every developer and saying, Hey, this is, this is the way to think about this. This is so part part of it, part of what this, what it sounds like you're going after is trying to figure out the right approach that can see the kind of growth that any successful tool sees, which is, you know, not calling up people one by one and saying, you should use this because, but people saying, I need this because it's obviously the way to do things. Right. So well, I, there's actually two of us at uh, at Google working on this, myself and uh, Shakid Fleur, uh, who's also in the London office with me. Well, in the London office, uh, meaning somewhere not, out, not actually in London. Um, so um, yeah, so Shakid Fleur and I are uh, working on this, but yeah, so we're We've got a bunch of kind of technical issues we have to work through, but uh, we've just started trying to put together some uh, case studies to show mostly kind of what kind of specifications might you write? 
you know, what the properties you want to uh, try to uh, check. Uh, and the approach we're taking is that we write the properties in a way that they can also be used with our property-based testing library. So to do some kind of fuzz testing. Uh, so we're trying to write this, uh, we've only just started, so we haven't got very far on it, but we're trying to write uh, up a series of case studies where we go, you know what, in this case, um, this is the way to specify this. And in this case, testing catch catches pretty much all the bugs, is not a problem. For, uh, using a formal tool would not add much. In this case, there's a lot of tricky corner cases and we think you would get something and, and so on. And trying to kind of explore what the advantages are uh, with the idea that we can use that to teach people how to, uh, how to use our tools. And when people say, hey, what your tool's good for, we'll actually be able to give them a, an answer with some confidence. So it sounds like you're trying to automatically even identify places where people might get mileage from using better formal approaches. And the idea would be to avoid this, this scenario where somebody takes a bunch of time writing a specification, for example, and then applies it to a program and it turns out everything was, was fine from the get go. And then they, they realize maybe that wasn't worth their time. Uh, a bit of that. I mean, building a specification is just incredibly hard work. I mean, that's the main thing I did at ARM for the last eight years was building a specification of the architecture. And, uh, you know, for something like that, for a processor um, where there's lots of potential different users, it's worth doing. But most of the time, you put a lot of effort into, the, into creating a specification and you're not actually going to get much value from it. Um, or you have a really simple specification, but you also have quite a simple implementation. And it turns out that your specification and your implementation are almost identical. In which case, you know, sure, it's easy enough to do, but are you actually likely to find many bugs if, if you're just checking that the code is equivalent to some almost identical code? So yeah, kind of the, yeah specifications are just uh, incredibly hard. So we're also kind of wondering kind of like, what can we do to, uh, to avoid having to write like a full functional specification? And, uh, you know, there's things that the, uh, a lot of the automatic uh, verification tools have been used for for C is you just go looking for memory allocation errors and buffer overflows and other things like that, which they're not what you want the program to, you don't check what the program is doing, check it's doing the right thing, you check it's not doing the wrong thing. So you know for sure it shouldn't be dereferencing de null pointers. So you check for that. And the nice thing is that's the same specification for all programs. So the specification effort is is like zero, or it's like what command line flags shall I use this time? It's you know it's it's really easy. Uh, so yeah, we're interested in kind of like how we can keep the specification effort uh, really low as well. And I think I think another thing I took away I, I read the paper that that you published recently, and I and I think we have similar approaches in a lot of our work is the idea that if if you can get someone using that tool and start to understand what's possible uh then their own curiosity might drive them if you have the the quick static analysis that gives you some of the bugs but not all but they sort of have this inkling feeling that maybe they it missed something over in this area if only the tool could know a little more then all of a sudden uh the developers asking the questions and that learning curve gets so much easier at that point when they they start asking how do i how do i show more how do i take the next step 
all of a sudden somebody's not telling them to write a specification rather they're going out and doing it because they want to make things better yeah and the thing is what's the gateway drug that's going to get them started in this and kind of want to do more and and the gateway yeah and and we've seen things like i think facebook infer is obviously springs to mind when when you mention quick static analyses that that turn things up and i think rust as a whole could be viewed in in this way right we're seeing lots of people switching to rust from c and c plus plus and why why are people doing that right and and the nice thing is they're doing it because uh they're tired of having these stupid bugs in their code they've actually and in particular they want more reliable code uh right you look at the kind of various projects that companies are doing involving rust and it's usually kind of bugs in this piece of code would be really bad therefore we can justify the effort of you know having to learn a new language before we can get started and not having such good tool support because it's early days and all, you know all the other costs of using a funny new language are justified because they want the higher quality uh, result and that's great because if we can offer them a little bit higher quality then they're open to it whereas if i take some random c or c plus uh, plus programmer they may care about kind of uh, improving quality but they may care about performance much more and that, that may be their uh, their focus with rust programmers you're pretty sure that the kind of quality of the results is important to them by the way the paper i think the paper joy was referring to just for people who might not be aware um uh it's called towards making formal methods normal meeting developers where they are um and you've recently published it with a bunch of other co-authors we'll, we'll share the paper we found it very interesting. I'm sure Joy has a bunch of questions about it. I'm curious from your point of view, what the main takeaway from, from this work was. So it's, I guess it's a mixture of things because the paper's about maybe like three or four things. So mm -hmm. one is, a, a, and maybe the main idea is this kind of meeting the developers where they are. So what that means is you say, well, I could aim for the early adopters who will pick up a new tool and try it just because, you know, they want to see, is this any use to me? It looks fun, whatever. And they're willing to put up with quite a bit of pain to, uh, to do that. But that's not most programmers. Most programmers are, well, it's maybe a fair number of programmers to be honest, but there's also ones who kind of like, they're already kind of like busy. They don't have a lot of spare time and uh, they've got a job to do and a, you know, a, de a deadline to do it by. And so what you want to do there is not say, hey, I've got this exciting new tool that requires a bunch of training and is going to crash every now and then and won't accept all your code and, and a list of other things which the early adopters will put up with. You instead want to be able to say, here's this tool. Uh, it's actually not so very different from what you normally do, right? So the meeting developers where they are is saying, well, what do they normally do? Well, they're, they're all running tests, they're all doing code review, they're all, you know, a fair number of them are fuzzing, you know, there's things like that. So it's like, are there any of those that we can kind of like benefit from and uh, make formal verification enough like that, that the training is fairly uh, minimal and it's just like, you know, here's a different tool to use. And so that's kind of what we're trying to kind of like hook into uh, with this kind of property-based testing approach we're taking. It's like, okay, this is a way of doing fuzzing. Oh, programmer. Yeah, fuzzing. I'm familiar with that. I 
know something about it. Ah, but this this way of fuzzing is going to uh, find the obscure corner cases that random values won't catch. Okay, there's a bit of extra value. And hopefully, if that actually comes out when they actually try it, then they go, okay, this is doing something that uh, you know I wasn't getting before. This difference between um, developers that are actually working on something, well, every you know, most developers are working on something, but people who have time to just try something for the sake of trying things versus, you know, use it in, in an actual project that they're de delivering. For some of these tools that require a lot of effort and, and investment of time, I could see how that's a, that's a hard sell. Um, yet, you know, in our minds, sometimes, at least in mine, there's this view of like, if somebody will take the time to try this thing, because the, the value might be there. But the, the truth is that people have been doing things this way for a while and it's not like it you know the whole world isn't this yeah you know, software is crashing and burning but not not as much as you would expect <laughs> I, I see what you mean it takes a lot of kind of effort for things to be effortless uh in in a way that people will use them well and, and even even early adopters have pain thresholds right like they, they, the early adopters aren't these people <laughs> that you can just torture with the worst tools because they're so excited right everybody's got a point where they're going to put something down and say this is not worth my time and a lot of formal methods of approaches and a lot of the the proof tools out there today i don't think have, have even gotten under the the threshold for all but the earliest of adopters who i think we would call phd students and in, in in most <laughs> corners right it's it's Somebody yeah. with a somebody with a full time job that is not doing early adoption work is probably going to shy away from a decent fraction of the tools out there. So bringing that pain threshold down is really important, but it's also a real interdisciplinary problem. I'd say like it's not. I think it's not something that just people like like you and I can solve on our own because we aren't great at user experience. Right, I think this is something that uh, Jin Yang was talking about in the uh, in, the, in that kind of uh, first podcast you did about uh, yeah, just trying to make it uh, look at what program, uh, developers are doing, kind of what they need to understand uh, to use something, how to make that uh, kind of fit into their workflow, and that was kind of yeah, that, I mean that was the kind of the core of the uh, paper was I'd actually never worked with user experience researchers before. So it was kind of interesting just kind of getting together with them and uh, trying to kind of like figure out kind of what they knew that they could bring to uh, this and uh, persuade them that, you know, the kind of problems I had were the kinds of thing that uh, they might be interested in uh, thinking about. And uh, it turned out that, uh, so Google and uh, you mentioned Facebook earlier, they've both got this thing of doing uh, kind of... Uh, in the code review process is when they show static analysis results because uh, programmers are still kind of like willing to change kind of uh, the code at that point. If you wait until the weekend before you run your uh, verification again and you then show them uh, a bug involving code they wrote last week, it's like, no, I'm, I'm done. I can add that to my priority list. Where shall I add it? Up here? No, no, a bit further, a bit further down, down here is where I think this... <laughs> one deserves to go, uh, but get it to them as the code is being reviewed and uh, they and the reviewers will uh, kind of start going, no, actually we should fix this now. Yeah, that's, there's no question that it's a, the sooner, the better, you know, the, the best possible is the, 
is the red squiggly underline as they're as they're typing it and from there the priority just continues to to decline and yeah the 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 facebook infer insight is that it hits the threshold of where it where it's too far down on that priority list it hits that very quickly um that's that that yeah. fall off is is quicker i think than i would have expected uh, until i had more experience with with developers development and um of course the paper that just says it really plainly that they observed that i one of my favorite parts of of the paper that you wrote is that it does actually have this this really diverse author list including not just formal methods researchers but i believe product managers as well as um full on ux researchers and the paper actually you can tell I can tell which bits were were not written by the formal methods people because all of a sudden <laughs> I hit this part where I couldn't understand anything and I had a bunch more research to do to start learning about UX stuff and it was really cool to see that in your paper. Yes, as I was as we were writing the paper, they'd start uh, referring to bits of work and I go, "Can you give me a citation for that?" And they'd add a citation and it's like, "Okay, now I'll go and read the paper or whatever so that I know what they just said." That, that, yeah, that was one of the really fun things working on. It was just kind of like being exposed to that and then going, oh, right, there's a bunch of stuff I can read here. And people have solved problems which kind of overlap with what we've done. So uh, let's just read a bunch of it. Yeah. Good job picking that one up because I didn't actually ask you a question. I just said something nice and let you talk. So you, <laughs> you still had something to say, but <laughs> but I realized after the fact that I had just sort of, you know, just, just complimented you and then expected you to say something. So. Uh, but yeah well so and i guess like i think a lot of people's familiarity with you might be from googling papers and landing on your website you undertook this really cool project to catalog all the papers you read for a year which by the way was sort of an insane number of papers even by i think many academic standards can you tell us a little about that project yeah so it was uh i guess it came out of a as I was finishing off my PhD, and uh, which was a couple of years ago, uh, and kind of preparing for the defense and just thinking about what I'm doing, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll reread all the papers that I cite. And then I'm, of course, cursing how many I cited and and uh, so on. And I, I read them in, uh, in chronological order from oldest first. And, I, and it was really fun seeing the way that field uh, had developed. So it's like, okay, I, I quite enjoy just the rereading of the papers. And uh, I also knew that, uh, so I'm, I'm living in uh, Cambridge, England, which is about a one hour train ride from, uh, from London, uh, where uh, the office is. So I was just changing uh, to work at Google. And so it's like, hmm, what shall I do on that one hour each way? And uh, you know, obviously I could read books and listen to podcasts, but I'm probably going to read papers. So uh, so I thought it would be fun just to kind of try to write uh, summaries of them. And yeah, the, and, and a large number of papers because, you know, five <laughs> days a week, you know, I have quite a lot of opportunity to read papers. So. Yeah, that explains the number, which is 122 papers that you read and summarized for people to kind of have access to the summaries from your point of view on your website. Yeah, and it became harder to do it once I, uh, once I moved to working from home because the commute was that bit shorter. And so instead I'd kind of like read a paper, oh, I'll summarize it tonight, and then I mm. never would, so. Just uh, like the developers with a, with a bug at the end of the stack. 
yeah, yeah. We'll summarize it tonight <laughs> i've been i've been feeling that pain too my um my nintendo hours have dropped way off since i stopped writing the best to work so you know you, you and i are in the <laughs> same in the same boat here for sure um it's barely same barely thing. time you know we can find time now so going going back to your your paper now um there was the the whole thing slightly revolves around this this prototype that you've built at google and it, it, I think a prototype because it came together remarkably quickly, um, but it still sort of seems like it's maybe given you some some useful early results. Can you tell us a little bit about what you built? Right. So we wanted to build on this idea of kind of uh, making things feel like testing or fuzzing, and uh, one of the uh, one of the libraries that uh, people use for testing uh, Rust programs is something called PropTest. And uh, it's our property-based testing library. So anyone who's familiar with uh, QuickCheck for Haskell or QuickCheck for Cork or, you know, Hypothesis for Python will, will have used one of these. And it's basically, it's, a, it's a, a fuzzer with a good user interface for saying, here's the kind of random values I want to generate and here's how to generate structured random values. Then you have some code that it runs and that code might contain some assertions that fail, some arithmetic that overflows, some, you know, assertions that fail, whatever it is that's uh, going on in your code. And then it acts like a fuzzer. It generates random values until it finds something which fails. And then when it finds something, it tries to shrink the value down and produce a simpler value. So it, it's quite a it's quite a nice uh, library. It, it's quite easy to use. If you try using it, it's kind of quite effective for things where random values are, have a decent chance of finding uh, problems. So it's it's pretty good. Um, and so what we wanted to do is say, okay, can we use that same interface for verification? So instead of creating random values, we create uh, kind of symbolic values. And then the verifier kind of tracks how those are used through the program. It hits an assertion or whatever, and it tries to find some values some concrete values that will make it fail. And so that's sort of the basic idea. So we just kind of took the prop test uh, API and re-implemented it uh, on top of our uh, kind of verification API. And so that's that's working pretty well. I'm, I'm actually spending a lot of time at the moment just working my way through corners of Rust, which it turns out don't work because they make the uh, our verification tool uh, unhappy. So uh, let me see. Uh, this morning I was uh, dealing with one to do with uh, memory allocation, and I managed to get that one fixed. And then I found that some Rust code was uh, checking, do you have this vector in uh, instruction available? Because I want to use it to accelerate this piece of code. And so I have tomorrow I'll try to figure out how to solve that one. So there's just lots of things for how to get uh, tools which were originally designed for verifying C code, trying to uh, adapt them to verify uh, Rust code. I think industry often finds kind of new problems that nobody had really understood was a problem worth solving. And so kind of hopefully you get academics to do that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. We build on top of all that academic work. So at the moment, I'm mostly using the uh, CLI symbolic execution tool, which is from uh, kind of Imperial College London, where just in the process of merging in some support for Seahorn, which is from University of Waterloo, and uh, 
And we've also got some support for uh, Cruxmuir, which comes from Galois, of course. So uh, yeah, we're building on all, all those things. We're actually, I mean, I, I don't think I can build a better verifier than those people can. In fact, I'm quite certain I can't. So I'm going, okay, well, what can I do that, that does add value? Uh, and and then kind of make that available so that kind of the community as a whole can figure out how they want to verify Rust code, how they need to change their tools to let them do that, and yeah, just uh, just generally get better support for Rust verification out there. And so, just to reiterate what you've done with this prototype, you've basically taken this thing that people are already using in Rust because they find it useful, this prop test, um, and you've you found a way to hook up, it sounds like multiple industrial and academic tools in such a way that they can all, a user can smoothly transition from the prop tests that they're already using into using these tools and probably get better results than they were getting in the first place. Is that an accurate summary of, of what you've done? Right, yeah. So they, yeah, I want them to be able to kind of very easily swap back and forth uh, kind of between different tools because, you know, sometimes fuzzing is going to be, you know, all they need, or it might even be better in some cases. Uh, sometimes they need kind of the uh, kind of analysis that, you know, a formal tool can do. But again, there's kind of differences, you know, depending on the scale of what they're doing and so on, they might want what to use one tool or another. So if, we, if there can be just one interface that you use for all your formal verification and ideally a fair chunk of your testing, I, I think you kind of got the best of both worlds. And even amongst the more formal tools, um, I don't understand exactly how you're using them all, but th there's even a range there, right? I think um, Clee is sort of doing this this feedback loop, as you mentioned, between trying to do uh, concrete exploration. So trying to generate basically smarter test cases from your fuzzer, whereas something like Cruxmere um, is really about getting more thorough guarantees across your test. And so even even amongst these formal tools, there's actually a, a spectrum of of use and application, right? Right. You can you can get CLE to a bit reluctantly uh, kind of check everything, and uh, but it's it's more comfortable looking for a uh, you know for for bugs or generating test cases for you. Uh, whereas, yeah, something like Cruxmuir is going to be kind of trying to check a property as a whole. Um, and yeah, they're gonna they're gonna scale different ways. Clee uh, tends to have a, a problem where it has this kind of time explosion where it uh, finds too many paths to check, and so you uh, you get this uh, kind of explosion from the number of paths. Uh, a tool like uh, Cruxmuir, if I haven't actually used it enough to be sure that it does suffer from this, but it's, that kind of tool tends to suffer from using far too much memory and making uh, kind of uh, SMT solvers very unhappy. So yeah, that, you're gonna switch back and forth. It might even be within the same program. You're verifying one bit one way, another bit the other way, so. As, as you were talking, I, I actually realized that as we were, as we were making you know, jokes about people with in incredibly high pain tolerances that you are, you are definitely an early adopter with an incredibly high pain tolerance to be uh, taking not one, but three uh, verification tools, two out of academia, um, and, and mashing them together into a, into a prototype, you've unquestionably qualified for the, the pain tolerance medal at this point. 
Well, thank you. But I actually uh, managed to uh, trick my uh, colleague uh, Shakit Fleur into doing two of them. So, <laughs> all right. So you get the you get the the silver medal in this case. We won't give you the gold. <laughs> yeah, Shakit gets the gold. Yeah, <laughs> not bad, anyways. Alistair, it was a privilege to talk to you. Thank you for spending this time with us. Oh, thank you. This is great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this was another episode of Building Better Systems. Uh, see you all next time. <laughs>